Turn with me to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. It's good to see you. It's good to sing with you. Uh, that lyric of that song, the good and gracious king, it just moves in my heart uh, thinking about the goodness of God and how gracious uh, he is to us. And we'll get a glimpse of that this morning as we look at Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Let's read it together and then we'll pray and we will begin. Matthew records these words. He says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him then, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we simply ask this. Would you open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your word today. And Father, I pray that you would take the wonderful words of this passage and that you would anchor them in our hearts. Father, that we would not forget these words, but they'd be seared in us. That we would remember the application that comes from this text that our lives would be changed and be different from encountering you today through your word. And so, God, we give you this time and we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move among us for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever experienced a time when you looked at something, and based on its appearance, thought it to be one way, but come to find out it's not what you expected. Has that ever happened to you? I think we all have experienced that at some level. I mean, you think about food menus. You think about looking at the, the food image that's on the menu, and it's so tasty looking, so savory looking, and then when it, the food is delivered to your table... 
It's not what that image portrayed. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Or you think about homes. You think about looking at the outside of a house, and it looks small at first glance, but once you enter into the house, you find you're amazed at what you encounter. There's all kinds of space. It's a lot bigger than it looked on the outside. Or you think about this example. Think about people of wealth. Those who have great wealth, you you look at them and you wouldn't think that they have great wealth. They dress the same, they talk the same, they drive similar vehicles, live in similar houses. It's not until you encounter them and know them that you realize that there's more to the story. You think of this one, and this one popped in my mind late in the week. I was excited about this example. This should resonate with some of you in here, hopefully many of you. As you think about the movie The Wizard of Oz, you think about Dorothy and her friends as they encounter the Wizard of Oz. When they first meet him, they believe him to be the great and powerful Oz. You remember this? And as the story unfolds, they come to realize that he's not who they thought he was. He was simply a powerless man behind the curtain. You remember, Dorothy's dog unveils the the curtain, and there he is. His true identity was veiled. It was veiled behind the curtain. But when the curtain was pulled back, they were able to see the true nature of the wizard, that he was only a mere man. Unlike the Wizard of Oz, our text this morning shows us that Jesus was more than a mere man. He's greater than he appeared to be. Isn't it intriguing that all the gospel writers and their narratives, they, they never give us any attention to what Jesus looked like. They never talk about it. They don't describe the color of his eyes, the sound of his voice. You know, so it it begs the question, would you have even recognized the Son of God? Would you have been able to pick him out of a crowd? I mean, certainly as he had massive followers and was doing miracles, it would have been note taken that there's something different about him. But would you have recognized the Son of God? Isaiah read for us earlier, Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 53, listen to what the prophet says. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as from as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. At least outwardly, he did not look like the Son of God, is what Isaiah is telling us. But there's something very interesting about this event in Matthew 17. It's not a show. It's not a demonstration for all the world to see. There's something extraordinary about it. Nothing like this has ever happened before. 
Yes, something similar had taken place, but nothing like this. Something similar took place, and that was in Exodus with Moses. You remember this, where Moses encountered the living God. And what happened when he came off the mountain? Do you remember what happened? What did he do? He shone brightly. And he was shining so brightly, what did he do? Do you remember? He put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't blind the people that he was encountering. But do you understand that what happened to Moses was reflected glory? It wasn't Moses' glory. It was someone else's. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not reflected glory that Jesus unveils. It's His glory that He shows. And that's a very important distinction that it's His glory. It's not someone else. It's His glory that's made manifest here on this mountain. This text tells us that Jesus was transfigured on this mountain. We get our English word metamorphosis from the Greek word that the gospel writers use here. The word at the basic meaning, it means to change into another form. But I found it interesting as I was reading this week of what Thomas Manton, how he described it, the Puritan, how he described it. He said it was not a change or an alteration of the substance of the body, as if it were turned into a spiritual substance. No. It remains still a true human mortal body with the same nature and properties it had before, only it became bright and glorious as the substance of the body was not changed, so the natural shape and features were not changed. Otherwise, how could it have been known to be Christ? The shape and features were the same, only a new and wonderful splendor put upon them. I thought that was helpful, thinking about what this looked like. So he he changes not just in his physical appearance, but the gospel writers say that his garments also looked different. Listen to how all the writers describe it. Matthew talks about how his face shone like the sun, and he says his clothes became white as light. Luke says this, the appearance of his face was altered, his clothing became dazzling white. And Mark says this, he says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That must have been amazing. One commentator said this, he said that his incarnation, his glory was veiled, but now the veil is taken away for a short period of time. And so our text tells us that Jesus took three disciples up on this mountain. Those who were with him were Peter, James, and John. All uh, gospel narratives record these three. These three witnessed this change. As I read through this text in preparation for the sermon, there's a question that just kept coming to me to ask. I had to ask this to the text. Why these three men and not others? Why Why didn't Jesus take all the disciples? Or why didn't Jesus take a few more disciples? Well, the reality is we don't know the answer to those questions because the gospel writers don't tell us why he picked Peter, James, and John. But I think it's interesting to look at Deuteronomy 17, 6. 
as the law required two to three witnesses to confirm the truthfulness of something. Perhaps it was because of Deuteronomy that these three men went with Jesus. Or it could have been because Peter seemed to be the spokesman for the disciples. You ever notice that in the gospel narratives? Peter is very outward with his, his mouth, right? He's constantly saying things, and we see it even here in our text. And many times when there's questions or concerns being directed to Jesus, guess who's doing that? Just guess. Peter, how'd you guess that? Peter, he's the one. Peter, as we think about him, played a very prominent role in the early church. He played a very prominent role in the advancement of the gospel among the early church. We're also told numerous times in the Gospel of John that John was a beloved disciple of Jesus. It it seems that he had a very close relationship with him. James, according to Acts 12, 1 through through 2, was the first disciple after Pentecost to be martyred for following Christ. In Acts 12, 1 through 2, we are told James was killed by the sword. All these men, they would go on to play important roles in the advancement of the gospel and the building up of the church. But here, it was certainly a privilege for them to be with Jesus on this mountain alone and to see his transfiguration. There's no doubt that this event would change their lives forever. It would change them. John would go on to write his own gospel, and it seems that he even alludes to this. He says, he says uh, in John 1.14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You hear what John says? We've seen it. We've seen his glory. He saw the glory of Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, listen to what Peter writes. He says, For we did not fall cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says they were eyewitnesses of this. There is no doubt that this event had a profound effect on their lives as they relate it to the early church. As we work through the text this morning, I've just got three simple points for you this morning. I want us to think through these three things. I want us to think through what this event meant to the disciples. I want us to think through what it meant to Christ. And I want us to think about, finally, what it means to us and our lives today. So this morning as we begin, let us think about what did this mean to the disciples who were with Jesus. We are told in Matthew 17 that they heard a voice that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think at the very outset we must say that this event was meant to confirm to Peter what the Father had revealed to him. You remember in Caesarea Philippi just a few weeks ago, Pastor Bill preached on this. Do you remember that? If 
It's when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And you remember their answers. They were varied in their responses. They said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and others say uh, some other prophet. But you remember, Jesus pressed it in even more. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied right away by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now to confirm that revelation which the Father had given to Peter, this incident on the, mount, the mountain is meant to confirm it to him that this is the Son of God. I mean, you look at the verses, and he's transfigured, the text tells us, before them. It tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared to them. We're told that a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. So the focus, at part at least, is the effect that it had on the disciples. Here, they got a fresh glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the transcendence and the otherness of Christ. Can you imagine what they saw? I mean, Matthew and the other gospel writers, they're all trying to paint this picture as they talk about his clothes, that Jesus became white as light and his clothes were dazzling white. It's majesty, unspeakable glory. But what does this mean? They're conveying that in all the time, these disciples were with Jesus during his earthly ministry, nothing like this had ever happened before. Nothing. There's this cloud that comes into the picture and overshadows all of them. It's reminiscent of the glory cloud of the Old Testament. You remember that? Of the tabernacle and the temple. It's the representative of the presence of God. And there's a voice that speaks from the cloud that identifies itself as the voice of the Father speaking to the Son that this is my Son. And hear this this morning. And what the Father says about the Son is far superior to what the others were saying about Him. Far superior. You think back to when Jesus asked those disciples, who do they say that I am? And there's a varied response. But the Father enters the picture here and confirms that this is the Son of God. He says it. And that's far superior to what anyone else would say about him, is what the Father says. The Father speaks and says, this is my Son, the one I love, the one whom I'm pleased with. You think back to that whole encounter with Peter and Caesarea Philippi where Jesus is telling them that he is going to be betrayed, he's going to be handed over to wicked men, and he's going to be crucified. All that cannot cloud the disciples' understanding of who Christ is. So this is God the Father confirming to those three disciples the true identity of Jesus. Calvin's 
commentary, he says this about this passage. He says, Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for a short time. His transfiguration did not altogether enable his disciples to see Christ as he is now in heaven, but gave them a taste of the boundless glory such as they were able to comprehend. This was not a complete exhibition of the heavenly glory of Christ, but under symbols which were adapted to the capacity of the flesh. He enabled them to taste in part what could not be fully comprehended. So they're just catching a glimpse. They're just getting a a taste of the glory. I think you would remember and recall that this is not how Jesus lived his life on earth. It was read for us earlier in Philippians 2 that as Paul described, Jesus came and what did he do? He emptied himself and took on the form of man, flesh. His glory was veiled. He was poor. He was homeless. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He was weary. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But here, for a short time, a brief moment, the glory of Christ is unveiled, and his identity is affirmed. But what are the response of the disciples? I find this intriguing. What was the response? Well, as I said earlier, Peter is always quick to respond, always quick to say things, right? Peter responds, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. Guess, guess what? We can make tents for all of you. I love what Mark says, that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. That's what he says. That's what the meaning of the text is. He had no clue what he was talking about. There is error in what Mark was saying, or what Peter was saying, Mark said about Peter. Here they are. Here's the error. Peter, in his thinking, wants to make tents for Jesus Moses, and Elijah, as if all three are the same. They're not the same. This story tells us that. He's looking at it. They're not the same. But yet, Peter wants to do something the same for all of them. Second thing is, the glory of Christ cannot be contained. It cannot be contained by a tent. I want to say this to you thirdly. This, This scene is very similar, eerily similar to what Peter did earlier when he told Jesus, when Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to the cross, go to Jerusalem and die, be handed over to the wicked men, blah, blah, blah. And Peter, you remember, said, may it never be, Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Look at what he does in the text here. What does he say? It's good that we're here. Let's build a tent. And you know what he's indicating. He's indicating, let's stay here. Let's enjoy this. This is wonderful. 
And this can't be any better. And so Peter is trying to get Jesus to just stay. There's no need for all that other. Let's just enjoy this. Do you see that? So there's great error in what Peter was saying. That was the response to this affirmation, to this confirmation that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. With all that said, there's no doubt, thinking long-term, that this event was to confirm and it would strengthen the disciples' faith. It would. It was to remind them of the true identity of Jesus as he made his way to Jerusalem. It was to remind them of that. But what did it mean to Jesus? What did it mean to him? Because there's no doubt the transfiguration was directed to the disciples, but I think there's also implications of where it's directed to Jesus. And we forget that many times. We forget about the humanity of Christ. We only think about the deity of Christ, and we lose sight of the humanity of Christ, that in his humanity, he did need reassurance and affirmation from the Father. We saw that at his baptism, and we see it here now, that the Father is affirming him, telling and making note that this is my son. He said that at his baptism. He says it here, that he is his affection. He is his delight. He is with him. The father is with the son. It's, it's interesting because Matthew in his gospel, he just says Moses and Elijah show up. And they're talking with Jesus. He doesn't tell us what they said. Mark does the same thing. Luke gives us insight. Thank you, Luke. Gives us insight to what was going on. You know what Luke says? Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus about his departure. That's interesting. I mean, they visibly saw the bodies of Moses and Elijah with Jesus talking to him about his departure. You know what the word is? His exodus. It's the new exodus. Paving the way for sinners. Jesus. He set before him with joy, endured shame, and the cross for us at his departure. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would, I would have loved to have been there to heard this conversation. I mean, you're talking about two men who have been dead for hundreds of years at this point. In the presence of God. Now they're here on this mountainside talking to Jesus about him leaving, about his departure, about his journey to Jerusalem. Wow. And the Father enters this whole thing going on, this whole 
event and affirms to his son that this is it. This is the right way. I'm with you. I love you. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you on this journey to Jerusalem. Does that make sense to you this morning? So this was a deep moment of reassurance of his relationship with his father. You think about it in our own lives. Can we expect anything different than our Savior? His path was suffering. Then what? Glory. Our path is the same. Those, Paul said, who desire to be godly will suffer. But we must remember that glory awaits us. It is in front of us, just like it was in front of Jesus here in the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. Listen to what he says. He says, at my defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me, listen to this, safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That was Paul's experience. And that is our experience too. That's what the testimony of the gospel narrative is about. The Lord stands by us and will strengthen us. He will strengthen his son. He strengthened these three disciples. And that was their testimony. And through their testimony, we are strengthened. So what is this for us? What does the transfiguration mean to us? You do realize there were so many ways to go with this text. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon preached, Bill and I were talking about it this week, he just preached one sermon on the face of Christ. <laughs> Nine pages. You'll hear some of it this morning as we get into this. What does it mean for us? Well, J.C. Ryle notes about this as he commented on Matthew 17. He said, this is a very hard thing to understand, this transfiguration. But listen to what he says. He says, the passage contains things hard to be understood, but it is an event full of practical lessons of deep importance to all Christians. Full of practical lessons. I'll be honest with you, I had to pull back, scale back on the practicality of this text for us this morning. I had a lot more. I pulled them off. I'm going to give you five things. Five things as we leave this morning. What does the transfiguration mean to us? First, the transfiguration reminds us that life in this world is not the whole story. 
The transfiguration reminds us that life in this world is not the whole story. As we live life in this world, as we daily live it, we must acknowledge and realize that this is not the whole story. There's a reality beyond what we see or recognize, and it's glorious beyond all words. Jesus lifted the corner of the veil, and his three disciples saw glory. Paul says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's something beyond this. Again, Ryle says, it's good for us to have the coming glory of Christ and his people deeply impressed on our minds. We are sadly apt to forget it. There are few visible indications of it in this world. Remember Hebrews 2.8 that talks about all things being subject to Christ, and yet we do not yet see everything that's in subjection to him. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. It does not appear what his people shall be. Their crosses, their tribulations, their weaknesses, their conflicts, are all plain enough, but there are few signs of their future reward. Hear that. Let us beware, this is still Ryle, let us beware of giving way to doubts in this matter. Let us silence such doubts by reading the history of the transfiguration. There is laid up for us, Jesus, and all who believe on him, such glory as the heart of man never conceived. It's not only promised, but part of it has actually, hear what he says, been seen by three competent witnesses, Peter, James, and John. My brothers and sisters, this world is not the whole story. And that's what the transfiguration points us to. There's glory beyond. There's beauty beyond compare, beyond what we can fathom. It is what Jesus has won for us. It's what Jesus is inviting us to. It is what he has prepared. Listen to his prayer. In John 17, verse 24, as Jesus prays to the Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want to remind you of this this morning. That every time a believer passes from this life to the next, it is an answer to this prayer. It's an answer to what Jesus said to the Father, Father, I want my people with me, and I want them to see this glory. Wow. We don't think of it that way, do we? We don't. I'll answer for you. We don't. That glory is to come. There's something beyond this. And Jesus has prepared it. 
And he's inviting us. He has oneness for us. Don't be despaired. As Ryle said, through the trials and the tribulations, through the heartache and the pain that we endure in this broken world, there's all kinds of examples of that, but very few of what's to come. Look up to Christ. Amen? Second, the transfiguration points us to the uniqueness of Christ. It points us to the uniqueness of Christ. I've already alluded to it, but you remember Peter's response. He wants to get busy of building tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, indicating that they're all of equal status, all of equal glory, all of equal honor. I don't know if you notice in the text or not, but it's when the brightness of the cloud comes and the voice of the Father that that all ends. <laughs> I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> because the Father enters in and intervenes in all that. Peter's rushing. We've got to do something. And the Father comes and says, This is my Son. My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Do you notice in all three narratives, the father never says anything about Moses. Never indicates Elijah is there. He points only to his son. Listen to him. Again, Ryle said this, I appreciate these words. Moses and Elijah were great men in their day, but in nature, dignity, and office, they were far below Christ. He was the root, they were branches. He was the master, they were the servants. Let's honor Moses and the prophets as holy men, but if we would be saved, we must take Christ alone for our master and glory only in him. The uniqueness of Christ is that he is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The uniqueness of Christ is that he is the only one who's done the work that God the Father requires. And we're called to trust him. We're called to identify with him. He calls us to repent of all our efforts and trust the work of Christ. Because he's pleased with him. He's not pleased with anyone else. Only the Son and only those who are found in the Son is the Father pleased with. So is your hope in him? Have you trusted Christ for salvation from your sins? If your hope is not in him, it's not hope at all. Is Christ unique to you? If he's your hope, then the hope of glory is yours. We're reminded of that here in this text. 
Think about what John wrote for us in John 14, 1 through 4. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go I prepare to prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Trust Christ. Honor him. Honor his uniqueness. Third, the transfiguration shows us how Christ relates to his people. I have to be honest to you, this was one of the most moving times in my study was this how he relates to his people. You read in verses 6 through 8, when the disciples heard this voice, what did they do? What did they do? They fell. And what's going on with them? They're terrified. They're afraid. They're scared out of their minds. The text tells us that Jesus came to them and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they got up from their being on their faces, they saw only Jesus. It's important to note here how Jesus relates to his disciples in this event. Because one might think that he would relate differently because of his glorious appearance. That's not what we find in the text. Even though this glorious appearance shows us his transcendence, his otherness, he's not far off from his own. We're told that the disciples fell on their faces and they were terrified. That's a similar experience throughout Scripture of those who encounter the presence of God. But how does Jesus respond to them during their time of fear? How does he respond to them? I want you to see this. He relieves them and he helps them by doing three things. What's the first thing that Jesus does to them? He comes to them and he touches them. He approaches them. He approaches them. He comes near to them. Second, he touches them. And third, he talks to them. He speaks to them. He came to them. He came. He was moved out of love and compassion for them. He touched them. Christ's touch is powerful. Have we not seen that in this gospel? We've seen when Jesus touches someone, the leper was healed. Do you remember Peter's mother-in-law who had the fever? What did Jesus do to her? He touched her and she was healed. He touched the two blind men and they received their sight. Here, Jesus touched the disciples to comfort them from the terrifying moments they had just saw and the things they heard. Jesus says to them, rise and have no fear. Man, what a gentle shepherd. So how does Christ relate to his people? He demonstrates tender care and compassion towards them during their moment of weakness hear that. How does Christ relate to us now? This section of Scripture gives us insight to that. He loves us. 
He comes to us. He touches us. He approaches us. He speaks to us through his word. He cares for us, his people. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, oh, the power of his touch. One touch of Jesus saves us. What will not his touch of us do? We are so much made of feeling. After all, that we want to know that the Lord really feels for us. And we will enter so tenderly into our case as, as to touch us. That touch reassures our fainting hearts. And we know our Lord to be Emmanuel, God with us. Sympathy, that's what he says. Fourth, the transfiguration account demonstrates the future hope for the believer's resurrection. It's a future hope of resurrection. The reformer Martin Luther said it this way. He says, the resurrection of the dead and the future glory and brightness of our bodies are shown. For this was something very remarkable that Christ was transfigured while yet in a mortal body which was subject to suffering. What then shall it be when mortality shall have been swallowed up and nothing shall remain but immortality and glory? Wow, what a thought. Think about as glorious as the transfiguration was, yet it was not even the full picture since Christ was still subject to suffering. Here, we just get a glimpse or a sneak peek of what it will be. Now that he's crucified and risen, death no longer has dominion over him. You have hope of the same. The hope of another life beyond the present life is quite comforting, especially as we suffer. Luther goes on to say, he says, in discussing Moses and Elijah and their appearing to Jesus, he says, there is added the appearance of Moses and Elijah who proved by their appearing that they had never really died and that there is yet another life besides the earthly life from which they were transferred. He goes on to say, this appearance proves that this life is nothing at all in comparison with the future life. Believer, there is nothing for you to fear in life and death when you compare it to the glory that is in store for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fifth, the transfiguration provides us this glorious snapshot of Christ's glory, which gives us a foretaste of what we can expect when he comes back, when he returns. We get a picture of his authority. We get a picture of his glory. It's a snapshot. It's a preview. It's, in, it's what's in store for us. It's what Matthew said in Matthew 13, 43, when we are transfigured in glory. He says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They'll shine like the sun. 
Or you think about Revelation 21, 23, where the glory of God, we're told, will be the, they'll be the light in that place. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon or shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And he goes on to say, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of, light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever in this place. Listen to this. In this place, we will ta- he will tabernacle not only with Moses and Elijah, but he'll do that with all his people. Listen to what John says in Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, dear friend, glory is in front of us. This text reminds us that. In just a short while, we will see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and give thanks to you for your good and perfect word. And Father, I pray for those who perhaps are here this morning and they do not know Jesus. Father, I pray through the power of your Spirit that you would work in their life and that you, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, you would lift the veil from their hearts so that they would see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and they would come and run to him. They'd see the uniqueness of Christ and treasure it. And so, Lord, I pray for them today. Surely in a room this big, with this many people, there are those here who are lost. Father, for the believers who are here, I pray that these words, these words of application would just resonate in their heart. That, Father, we would not be people of fear. That, Lord, we would look to you, we'd listen to you. And what you have said. So, Lord, calm our anxious thoughts and help us, as Raoul said, to look to you, to look to what's beyond, what awaits us, what you've promised to us. And so, God, today we just pray, would you just work among us, please, for your great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.